taken from John's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. And you'll find it on page 1075. That's 1075 in your Pew Bible. Jesus teaches Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For you could not perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with you. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can anyone be born in old age, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For so God loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. What a wonderfully rich passage we have here in John chapter 3. As Jesus comes to show Nicodemus how he must be born again, before he enters the kingdom of God. And this passage poses a question for me, and it's this question. How do you measure love? How do you measure love? Well, it's a question that was asked of a group of youngsters, and they came up with an eclectic group of different answers. Somebody thought you could measure love by the number of butterflies in your tummy. Do you remember those days? Somebody thought you could measure them by the number of bunches of flowers that were given. I'm getting a funny look from over there. (laughs) Most of them, though, agreed on one thing, and it was this. You can measure love by looking at the actions that demonstrate love. So, for instance, a person who peels the orange for you when they know that you really detest peeling oranges is, in a small way, showing you love. 
The person who notices you're upset when nobody else does is showing you love. The person who stands up for you at the risk of their own reputation is showing you love. But how do we measure God's love? Well, verse 16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world. I'm fascinated by that little word, so. There's something, when you use the word so, it's, it amplifies the meaning, doesn't it? I walked up that hill, it was so steep. I went swimming, the sea was so cold. It doesn't mean it was cold. It means it was freezing. It was really, really cold. So when I read verse 16, what I read Jesus saying is, God really, really loved the world. But he's not talking about the world as a planet. God really, really loved me. That's how much God loves us. And how do we measure that? Because of what action he took. He gave his only son, his one and only son. And he not only gave him to us, he gave him for us. That is love in action. It's a love which comes from God and is focused on us. It's a love in which he gave us everything. He looked at the cost, but didn't didn't balk at the cost. It's a love that valued us so highly that he would give the most valuable thing he had for us. That's sacrificial love. That's unconditional love. That's love that gives without fear. And why was that? Because God really, really loves me. As you measure love, you realise that love is a costly thing. And actually, that's the title of a book written by Dick Hills. And he quotes something that happened to him in Africa. He says this, She was lying on the ground. In her arms, she held a tiny baby. As I put a cooked sweet potato into her outstretched hand, I wondered if she would live till morning. Her strength was almost gone, but her tired eyes acknowledged my gift. The sweet potato could help so little, but it's all I had. Taking a bite, she chewed it carefully. Then placing her mouth over the baby's mouth, she forced the soft, warm food into the tiny throat. Although the mother was starving, she used the entire potato to keep her baby alive. Exhausted from her effort, she dropped her head to the ground and closed her eyes. In a few minutes, the baby was asleep. Later during that night, the mother's heart stopped, but the little girl lived. Love is a costly thing. A love that will die that another might live. If you're a fan of Hansard, you'll read that um, in the House of Commons, Prime Minister William Gladstone 
announced the death of Princess Alice. And this is what he said. He said, the little daughter of the princess was seriously ill with diphtheria. The doctors told the princess not to kiss her, not to kiss the little daughter and endanger her life by breathing the child's breath. But once when the child was struggling to breathe, the mother, forgetting herself entirely, took the little one in her arms to keep her from choking to death. Rasping and struggling for her life, the child said, Mummy, kiss me. Without thinking of herself, the mother tenderly kissed her daughter. In that act, Princess Alice contracted that same diphtheria, and a few days later, she too died. Love is costly, but love in action forgets itself. It doesn't count the danger, it doesn't count the cost. So when John tells us that God really, really loves me, he really, really means it. It's a love that hurts. God loves me with tears in his eyes. God loves me with everything he's got. That's how God loves you this morning. But you know, God's love is even more remarkable than a mother's love. Romans 5 verse 6 tells us this, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God didn't show us love because we loved him. God showed us love while we were his enemies. Those who despised him, rejected him. And as we stand at the foot of the cross and we see the almighty God crucified in the place of his enemies, then we begin to see how much God loves us. Love in action. On that Good Friday, as Jesus hung there, the sun stopped shining and the ground quaked as the almighty God died as an act of love for those who had rejected him. And it wasn't just death that Jesus experienced. It was my judgment that he took too. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the cry of one who is seeing the eternal presence of God disappearing as God turns his back on his own son. It's not an act of spite. It's not an act of anger. But it's so that judgment can be satisfied and that me, we, his enemies, can be released and be made one with him again. We often say it in our creed, he was crucified, died and was buried, and he descended to the dead. What happened in those three days, we will never fully understand. But what we do know is that in the Garden of Gethsemane, that prospect absolutely terrified Jesus. And what we know from the Apostle Paul is that there was a divine exchange that happened at that point. God took on my nature, my sin, my punishment, and I have taken on his divine nature, his righteousness, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, 
Who like we his praise should sing? A life given and a life saved. And this gets straight to the heart of what Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about. For the enemy to be redeemed, he must be born again. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Just as we've been each born physically, we must now be all born spiritually. Now, I could spend a few minutes describing how we are each born physically, but I'll forgo that. But we are all born spiritually, and to do that, when we are born spiritually, we have to acknowledge that very fact that we are enemies of God. We might not feel like an enemy of God, but we have gone our own way, not his way. And in doing so, we don't honour him as our God, as our King, as our Lord. Rather, we have chosen to do what pleases us, rather than what pleases him. We say it in confession, don't we? We have sinned and done evil in your sight. And Jesus invites Nicodemus, and he invites him to be born again, to come to life spiritually, to be born again of the Spirit of God. See, by our nature and by our actions, we are alien to God. So we need to turn from that to repent and acknowledge that God is good and we are not. To ask for forgiveness, to turn from our sin and to be filled with his spirit. When we do that, we are born again of his spirit and the new life of God comes into our hearts because we have invited him in. So how much does God love us? He loves us so much that he gave everything he had that we might be reconciled to him. When you get home today, to your flat, to your house, there is one thing I can guarantee pretty well, and that is your house will be sizzling with electricity. It'll be there in every room. It'll be in every corner of every room. You probably don't think about it, you don't realise it. But your house is wired with an inexhaustible source of energy built into it. It's all around you. Now you may go home and you may choose to ignore that. You may deny it. You may choose not to use it. You may have everything turned off. But I would predict that fairly soon your house will become dark and cold, and damp, and then dirty, and then you'll become hungry and miserable. It's there, but you've chosen not to use it. But if you choose to accept that gift of electricity that's all around you, your home is going to be filled with warmth, and light, and warm water, and the smell of cooking, and even the smell of clean washing. You'll have communications, music, entertainment. You will have chosen to participate in that which gives you life. And to me, that's a picture of the Holy Spirit. We can ignore him, even though he's with us. We can live our own life, our own way. 
or we can choose to accept him and invite him and for him to be part, an essential part of our life. And in so doing, we are born again of God's spirit. We become one again with God, our Heavenly Father. I want us just to bow our heads for a moment and just have a moment of quiet reflection and prayer. Very soon on this table, the bread and the wine will invite us to celebrate and participate in the greatest act of love ever seen. And Paul says, as we come to that communion table, that we should examine ourselves before we eat the bread and drink the wine. He wants us to look inwards and ask ourselves this question. Am I born again of the Spirit of God? Have I renounced my rebellion against him? Do I accept his dying love for me? Am I willing for him to be king of my life? And will I, as I celebrate this communion, will I know that salvation that he has purchased and freely offered me? Father, this morning we thank you for your immeasurable love to us in Jesus. We thank you for the new life you offer us through your spirit. Thank you that you really, really love me, holy, sacrificially, unworthy as I am. Father, we stand in awe of your love, the love that you've shown to us in Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.